I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to another episode of the DadCast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of scholarly articles, short fiction, and sometimes even poetry to help a university student find a little balance and support. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for another episode of the DadCast. Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 7 of the DadCast. Today's reading is Mixing It Up, Métis Design and Material Culture in the Canadian Conscious by David T. Fortin. Introduction. In 2008, author John Ralston Saul described Canada as a Métis civilization because, like Métis people, Canadians in general have been heavily shaped by the First Nations. His bold proposition that such a collective identity might emerge from a better understanding of Canadians as a people of Aboriginal inspiration echoes the 1979 Declaration of Métis Rights, which states that the Métis are the true spirit of Canada and the source of Canadian identity. Yet, within Saul's suspicious mass Métisization, it is essential to note his strategic use of the small and capital M, which is at the core of current debates surrounding Métis identity and culture. The recent Daniels versus Canada case reconfirmed that the Métis, an indigenous people initially formed through mixed-blood relationships during the fur trade, are Indians as per the 1867 Constitution. Along with the First Nations and Inuit, they form the now broadly used acronym for Canada's Indigenous Peoples, FNMI. However, despite this formal recognition, there remains some confusion as to who should be considered Métis. Nascent to Canadian architectural discourse, the questions surrounding Métis culture and peoplehood offer significant insights into the inherent complexity involved not only with the idea of contemporary Métis architecture, but also contemporary Indigenous architecture more broadly as related to issues of cultural identity and design processes. Compared to other Indigenous communities who have centuries of building practices and traditional typologies to reference and celebrate, for example, the igloo, the teepee, the longhouse, the kiva, the wigwam, etc., there is very little understanding of what traditional Métis architecture is, let alone contemporary interpretations. Furthermore, despite millions of dollars spent by the government during the previous decades on schools, healthcare centers, cultural buildings, housing and recreation facilities in Métis communities, a critical discussion about Métis architecture has been surprisingly absent, presumably due to some of the confusion surrounding who they are and how contemporary architecture might play a role in strengthening collective and individual Métis identities. This chapter thus opens with a brief but essential introduction to the complexities surrounding Métis peoplehood, followed by two separate discussions of how the capital and lowercase m's might inform the notion of contemporary Métis architecture moving forward. Big M, Little M To begin to understand the Métis in the current global context, it's necessary to first acknowledge the obvious, that ethnic intermingling has occurred for time immemorial as an inherent outcome of human exploration and migration. This expanded significantly during the age of European discovery in nearly every exotic corner of the world to varying degrees. 
For France, like other European countries haunted by the Black Death of the 14th century, a higher population meant increased power, and this guided colonizing policies to encourage their overseas nationals to intermarry with indigenous populations in order to expand the geographic reach of the nation. As early as the 1670, the word Métis, from the Latin word Messer, meaning to mix, was used by French-speaking settlers to describe those born from interracial relationships, primarily between European settlers and First Nations women during the fur trade. The use of Métis became increasingly necessary as other terms such as half-breed, quarter-breed, and eighth-breed became unmanageable. However, as Redbird importantly notes, it is safe to assume that Métis identified themselves as a distinct group sometime before they were labeled as such. Furthermore, as MacDougall et al. assert, despite such widespread mixing throughout North America during these centuries, this does not indicate that Métis peoples are correspondingly scattered throughout the continent. Only in specific situations, when the dual-heritage children begin to intermarry and create families and communities with one another, and to develop a distinctive culture based on novel practices such as a new language, artistic production, or economic activity, and especially when a shared sense of collectivity is expressed, ethnogenesis or the birth of a new people occurs. This was the case in Canada as a critical mass of Métis people converged by the early 19th century at the Red River Settlement in Manitoba, where they played a fundamental role in the economic, political, and cultural activity linked to the vast Canadian fur trade. By 1870, the year the Canadian government acquired Rupert's land from the Hudson's Bay Company, the population at Red River was largely Métis, with approximately half-speaking French and half-speaking English. As the buffalo hunt declined and more settlers arrived from Ontario following the massive land transfer, many of these Métis migrated further west, forming both sedentary and migratory communities, primarily throughout the regions now known as Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Montana. Over several decades, these prairie or Red River Métis and their leaders, most famously Luriel and Gabriel Dumont, engaged in a series of political and physical confrontations with the government over their sovereignty, their rights to land, and the preservation of their unique culture, culminating in the 1885 Northwest Resistance in Batouche, Saskatchewan, where General Middleton and his army defeated the Métis and their First Nations allies in one of Canada's few armed conflicts with Indigenous people. For many, it is this history of a unified political and cultural group that established the Métis as a distinct nation. According to Anderson, it is also critical to understand that the Métis ethnogenesis in contemporary terms is indigenous because there is evidence of prior presence, meaning that Métis culture and society existed before racializations were set forth through the colonizing process. This is a critical distinction that the establishment of Métis peoplehood in the prairies, like other indigenous groups such as the Lumbee, Oji Cree, Comanche, and Seminole, predates the acquisition of the land by the Canadian government. Thus, the Métis are indigenous not solely because they are genetic descendants of their various First Nations ancestors, but because Métis society existed at least a century before Confederation. Another prominent Canadian court ruling in 2003, however, commonly known as the Powley case, concluded that the two Métis men from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Steve and Roddy Powley, 
could not be held guilty for unlawfully shooting a moose without a hunting license, given that they, as Métis, had a right to hunt under Section 35 of the Constitution. This decision has been instrumental in urging a national discussion about the use of the term Métis outside of the prairies, given that, for example, the Métis National Council only includes provincial jurisdictions from Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. A specific example of this scenario is the mixed heritage communities along the coast of Labrador, who formed the Labrador Métis Association in 1986, despite few, if any, people previously using the word Métis to self-identify The claim was contested by both provincial indigenous institutions, such as the Labrador Inuit Association, and the provincial government. But a 1998 Royal Commission concluded that, similar to the Red River Métis, these mixed-blood communities, with their own history of exclusion from both their Inuit and settler ancestors, as well as a uniquely established culture, exhibited the historical rootedness essential for nationhood. Thus, shortly after they changed their name to the Labrador Métis Nation, until again renaming themselves as the Nunatu Kavut, meaning our ancient land in Inuktitut, the mother tongue of the Inuit people of Canada, in 2010 to better reflect their Inuit heritage. Despite the community's official use of this term, others describe them as Inuit Métis because the majority of the community members now identify as Métis. Yet, even if the Nunatu Kavut are accepted under a Métis umbrella, there are still remains some confusion surrounding these small M Métis. As Peterson and Brown highlight, it was in 1984 that the Métis National Council opened its statement to the United Nations Working Group on Indigenous Populations with an attempt to clarify this issue. Written with a small m, Métis is a racial term for anyone of mixed Indian and European ancestry. Written with a capital M, Métis is a socio-cultural or political term for those originally of mixed ancestry who evolved into a distinct Indigenous people during a certain historical period in a certain region in Canada. Furthermore, this distinction is important to better understand shifting Métis demographics in Canada. In the 2011 census, registered Métis comprised roughly one-third, approximately 451,795 people, of all Indigenous people. However, while population growth for Indigenous people between 1996 and 2006 was significantly higher than for non-Indigenous people, this was largely fueled by the near doubling of the Métis, compared to 29 and 26% growth by First Nations and Inuit, an anomaly largely due to an increasing tendency for people to identify themselves as Aboriginal in recent years. For many Métis, this trend is potentially troublesome in that Canadians who discover a distant Indigenous ancestor are beginning to self-identify as Métis despite having no cultural or meaningful connections to any specific Métis community or place. The vetting of Métis ethnicity has recently gained national attention, as even renowned Métis author and spokesperson Joseph Boyden's claims to his Indigenous heritage have been publicly interrogated. For now, the governing provincial Métis associations have established guidelines as to who can be accepted which does not allow a distant Indigenous ancestor to qualify one for Métis status. However, 
Other more recently formed associations, such as the Métis Federation of Canada and the Canadian Métis Council, also now issue memberships that are not as stringently tied to Red River. Thus, this complex and highly contested registration process, which could have significant implications for issues such as future government reconciliation with Métis people, continues to evolve across the country amidst Métis political turmoil in places like Saskatchewan, one of the highest Métis-populated provinces. So what does this all mean for architecture more precisely? The following sections will offer some perspectives that may add some clarity while simultaneously asking more questions. First, with regard to Métis as a specific cultural group, there has been very little architectural attention paid to their distinct cultural and or spatial and material sensibilities, or how contemporary design could further strengthen Métis identity with this in mind. Thus, it is necessary to first introduce the Métis vernacular traditions formed in Red River during the 19th century, and how they evolved across the prairies. A few contemporary interpretations of building design for Métis communities will then be discussed, as well as selected projects by contemporary Métis designers. Lastly, given the trajectory for a general increase in the number of both Métis and self-identifying Métis, and Ralston Saul's call for a collective Métis identity, it is worth briefly considering what might be described as contemporary Métis architecture when conceived as a syncretic approach to design, embracing both Indigenous and non-Indigenous worldviews, as well as the limitations and caveats associated with such a position. Métis as a Nation to better understand the complexities surrounding the idea of a contemporary Métis architecture, it is worthwhile to first consider that Douglas Cardinal, as Canada's most iconic Indigenous architect, has been described in media and publications as a Métis Blackfoot architect, of Blackfoot, German, and Métis heritage, and as a Métis architect. Thus, though it is often assumed that Cardinal is Métis, there is a complexity to his ancestry adequately summarized by Hall. Both his mother and father were of mixed European and native Canadian blood. He was one quarter Blackfoot, and she was of German and Métis ancestry. And while Joseph and Francis Cardinal suppressed their Aboriginal roots, often to the point of denial, their native genetics were written clearly on their first child's dark face. Furthermore, despite openly acknowledging his Métis heritage, he also states clearly in an interview with the author that, I'm not Métis in terms of that culture, per se, revealing his understanding that having mixed-blood heritage does not automatically make one Métis. In fact, of the 15 or so registered Indigenous architects in Canada, many of mixed heritage, only three are known members of a Métis nation or federation. The author, Sean Bailey, and Harriet Burdett Moulton, who are discussed below. Thus, if the world's most recognized Métis architect is not, by his own admissions, capital M Métis, then this evidently complicates any discussion about contemporary Métis architecture. To address this, it is essential to recognize that in order to register as a member of a Métis nation in Canada, one must identify as being distinct from other Aboriginal peoples, meaning that one cannot be registered as both First Nations and Métis. If this were possible, it is likely that more of Canada's Indigenous architects would also identify as Métis. For example, 
In a 23rd of September 2016 interview with Denny architect Chris Clark, he describes himself as Métis, not in the Red River sense, but in the fact that I am both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, which has given me the ability to see many different aspects of things, which I may not if I was only one or the other. Similarly, Saskatchewan architect Ray Gosselin, whose portfolio of work references various Indigenous cultural forms, including Cardinal's curving style, is a member of the Muskwapatung First Nation, but also takes pride in his Prairie Métis roots. Thus, to use the division set forth through the registration process is limiting and discussing Métis architecture given its necessities, temporarily excluding many Indigenous architects in Canada, including Cardinal Gosselin and Clark, who, along with fellow mixed-heritage Mohawk architect Matthew Hickey, designed a Northwest Territory Métis Legislative Assembly building for their award-winning combined 2006 Master's Thesis from the University of Calgary. Furthermore, related to national debates surrounding the use of Métis in Eastern Canada, internationally recognized Canadian architect Brian McKay Lyons has also publicly identified as Métis, explaining that my forebears, Micmac, go back 10,000 years. I have my Métis card. I feel very, very rooted in the Maritimes. Yet in his foreword to local architecture, building, place, craft, and community, there is no mention of how his Indigenous identity has impacted his career. Instead, he writes, as a practitioner, I would like to think of myself as a farmer, and as a teacher, I would like to think of myself as a village priest, a keeper of the faith, keeping the lamp lit in the face of often disappointing reality. Thus, in order to further navigate through some of these convoluted distinctions, it is essential to recognize that Indigenous architecture is considered here as a term under which Métis architecture is categorized, along with other distinct First Nations and Inuit communities in Canada. And while there is substantial cultural variation between even the Red River Métis, scattered across the Prairie Provinces and Northern States, there is indeed a traditional Métis culture of building worthy of further recognition and understanding. Thus, the following sections will focus on 1. A brief summary of Métis folk homes and material culture in the prairies. 2. Architecturally designed projects for Métis communities. and 3. Examples of contemporary Métis designed projects. Métis Folk Homes and Material Culture a complete history of the earliest Métis buildings lacks proper documentation. However, it can be assumed that various mixed-blood peoples established variations of an inherited building typologies during the early centuries of indigenous and settler contact. A rare study into early Labrador Métis sod structures, for example, suggests such early hybrid approaches likely existed. However, it is also probable the design and construction by these early Métis groups would have depended largely on which culture, indigenous or non-indigenous, they were closest to geographically and who mentored the builders. For example, by the time of the establishment of the Red River Settlement, the most densely populated Métis community of the prairies in the 19th century, the architecture largely resulted from a combination of two primary factors. One, available resources, and two, construction methods and building typologies used by the British and French colonies of Eastern Canada. Like most settler communities throughout North America, early buildings at Red River used log construction due to the limited availability of other building materials 
and an established history of similar methods from Eastern Canada and Europe. Red River structures predominantly used a method whereby squared horizontal logs are notched and slid into grooved vertical posts at various distances depending on the available length of the log. In French-speaking communities such as St. Boniface, a Métis community in the region, it was referred to as a potu sur sol, or post on the sill. Given the mortising of the vertical uprights into heavier log sill foundation, Largely influenced by trends arriving from eastern Canada, there were variations on these homes and buildings that included the Hudson's Bay style described above, now also commonly known as the Red River style, and various notched corner details, including saddle, dog, wedge, square, and dovetail. Some of the prominent Red River style buildings of the period in Manitoba include the Grey Nuns Convent and School, and various Métis homes, including the Delorme's House and Louis Riel's mother's home in St. Vital. The Métis carried these building methods with them as they migrated west, and the notched corner construction becoming the rule for Métis farm buildings in the western interior. The Hudson's Bay style also appeared, for example, in the construction of the chapel at the Obelate Mission of St. Albert, Alberta, where Father Albert Lacombe established a Métis missionary. However, in Métis houses, it was generally used for lean-to additions only. Yet, while the building techniques employed by the Métis were largely inherited from their European ancestors, it is their unique application of them that is most relevant to a discussion of contemporary Métis design. Research led by Simon Fraser University archaeologist David Burley during the 1980s confirmed earlier suggestions of a distinctly Métis vernacular that emerged in the Saint-Laurent region of Saskatchewan during the 1870s, as many Métis, fleeing from Manitoba due to the increased number of homesteaders arriving from Ontario, shifted their migratory patterns, hunting buffalo, to establishing agricultural farmsteads. Burley's research concluded that the houses of the region embodied the concepts by which Métis ethnicity can be defined and identified, thus providing significant insight into the spatial and material values embraced by the Métis of the period. The authors write, The unconscious rule of Métis behavior conformed to a conceptual order that, in its basic structure, is reproduced in day-to-day activities and in the built environment. This structure is holistic, integrating continuity in the culture and nature relationship, an unbounded and asymmetric perception of space, and overriding concerns with egalitarian principles of social organizations and consensus. The egalitarian values, for example, led the Métis of Saskatchewan to adopt the river lot system used at Red River and along the St. Lawrence River, not only because they were familiar with it, but also because it allowed each family equal access to both the river and the road, while allowing houses to be alongside one another to strengthen their sense of community. The placement of buildings on the landscape also differed from non-Métis farmsteads in the region in terms of their relationship to the landscape. They oriented their buildings outward to their surroundings, used informal string arrangements of buildings relating to specific landscape features, did not delineate property boundaries with fencing, and exhibited a general preference for open, unstructured space that was consistent with settlement patterns from Red River. The overall design of the Métis Folk House similarly reveals a unique tension between order and informality, exterior and interior. As 
Burley and Horsfall write, the Métis adopted the Georgian or Euro-Canadian facade, but not the interior. The symbolic message of the Métis house front masked the reality of Métis cultural values. This built environment reflects openness, informality, lack of rigidly defined structure, and continuity with the landscape. Thus, the completely open and informal Métis interior was a distinct feature not only for its egalitarian qualities, but also for its adaptability. The large room could easily transform from a dining or living space into a gathering space or dance floor, facilitating cultural events and other everyday practices. In Burley's words, the folk home interiors were thus the antithesis of the Georgian homes that reflected a highly structural and specialized society due to their lack of boundedness, an environment in which Métis' sense of communalism, consensualism, and equity were preeminent. Freelance writer Graham Chandler further describes these Métis' interiors as being closer to the Plains teepee than their settler counterparts. Furthermore, renowned Métis author Maria Campbell recalls in a 2016 interview how grandmothers would sleep near the front door of these homes, which ensured the protection of the children and women. She also describes the seasonal rituals of burning the grass surrounding the house prior to cleaning the interior and replastering and liming the exterior back to a bright white color for the upcoming summer. These Métis folk homes, with variations across the prairies, were built until around the 1930s when various influences, such as access to dimensioned wood as well as various other commercially available goods, began broadly shifting approaches to home building. However, it is also important to note that following the 1885 resistance, the Métis were mostly marginalized, with many fleeing to woodland areas or squatting along road allowance areas where they became known as the road allowance people. In urban centers, such as Winnipeg, they formed shanty communities, such as the Rooster Town, where they built mobile, peri-urban structures, often out of recycled materials, before finally being evicted during the late 1950s. In Alberta, the provincial government accepted responsibility for their devastated Métis communities, finally establishing land for them in the form of settlements scattered throughout the province through the 1938 Métis Population Betterment Act, designed to allow them to live off the land. During the formation of these communities in the 1930s and 1940s, Métis family arrived with little money or possessions and built log homes akin to the earlier folk homes. Similarly, schools and churches were erected through communal efforts using local materials and traditional building methods. However, government housing soon replaced these early log homes and buildings through various programs including, for example, vinyl-sided pre-manufactured houses and mobile homes similar to neighboring non-Métis centers. Despite these trends for government low-cost housing and other prefabricated community buildings being broadly implemented in Métis communities for the past half-century, recent field research suggests there are examples of contemporary Métis-built homes with a remarkable resemblance to the 19th-century folk home, demonstrating some continuity of material and spatial tendencies. For example... A resident of the East Prairie Settlement in Alberta gave up his new government home to return to what Public Works Coordinator John Supernow refers to as the old ways. He chose a site on the edge of a remote section of Muskeg to build an off-grid two-story home that combines contrasting approaches to material and construction. The open interior of the home exhibits rustic elements, i.e. rough timber posts, wood-burning stove, hunting rifle, and traditional medicines hung to dry and manufactured ones, 
corrugated plastic panels, colored skylights, prefabricated doors, and framing connectors. Even a Marcel Brewer Seska inspired chair. Additionally, the exterior combines one foot by one foot hewn log construction and a lean-to for a sweat lodge. With conventional wood framing, commercial oriented strand board, the OSB sheathing, store-bought wood lattice, and spray foam insulation to replace traditional chinking. Although the details are rudimentary and ad hoc, the home is unique in its conscious combination of traditional and western construction and material approaches, as well as its response to its unique landscape. Similarly, a Métis-built home in northern Saskatchewan's Fish Lake Métis local territory repurposes power line posts into structural members, has a similarly open floor plan centered on a wood stove, and maintains strategic relationships with the surrounding landscape. Thus, though the 19th century folk house had been largely seceded by other construction methodologies by the 1930s, there is convincing evidence that some Métis home builders are erecting houses consistent with earlier Métis ways. Furthermore, visits to various Métis communities across the prairies reveal other forms of distinctly Métis contemporary material culture. For example, boat building, animal shelters, and smoking structures for fish and meat that have formal and performative intricacies worthy of more architectural attention. In northern parts of Canada, these include items such as dog sleds, snares, and drums all used by Clark and Hickey to inspire their thesis project for a Métis legislative building. It is evident that further studies into contemporary spatial material and cultural forms in Métis communities hold immense promise for implementing a relevant Métis architecture moving forward. Architecture designed for Métis communities Despite the historical evolution of Métis material culture and design described above, it must also be recognized that an architectural paternalism for the Métis has persisted. Most likely initiated in Red River, in schools such as the Grey Nuns Convent that was established by Bishop Joseph Norbert Provence to support his goals of assimilating the Métis and First Nations children through enforced European education. Such colonizing relationships were famously repeated across the country in residential schools that shared no connection with those Métis children whose families were closer to the buffalo hunt or especially those identified as living the Indian mode of life. This has continued since the defeat of the Métis in 1885, evidenced by a repeated pattern of housing and community buildings being designed for and not with Métis communities, if they're designed at all. As both church and state took increased responsibility for sheltering the Métis due to the rapid deterioration of their economic situation, following the loss of their lands and livelihood without proper compensation, colonial power relationships became increasingly evident. In Alberta, for example, according to the Métis Nation of Alberta and Shawchuk, at no time either in the opening or closure of the St. Paul de Métis colony from 1896-1905 were the Métis consulted as to their own desires. Significant evidence of governmental control over all aspects of building and the development of the Alberta settlements similarly exists. While visits to multiple Métis communities quickly reveal broadly imposed building construction and design with little to no consideration for the landscape or Métis culture. As especially disturbing contemporary example of this is the administrative center built at the Batoche National Historic Site that opened in 1986 in Saskatchewan. 
according to IKOY, the architectural team from Winnipeg led by Ron Keenberg, the project intended to interpret the history of the Métis settlement, prepare visitors for self-guided trail tours through the adjacent battlefield, and house site maintenance facilities. Yet, the focus of the design overtly fetishizes the battle while completely ignoring the historical context of the Salonois region where the Métis folk houses were most evident. IKOY's description of the building is especially revealing with regard to their interpretation of contemporary Métis culture. The site has come to symbolize the Métis' last stand as united people, the end of their independence, and the eventual closing of the Canadian frontier. The building is designed to intensify the story, its rifled gallery walk, its V-site focused on the church, its pavilion administration, theater, and museum provide spaces to glimpse the landscape. IKOY's solution to the prompt for a Métis interpretive center was thus to provoke visitors via imposed material and alien forms, corrugated metal-sided boxes, and force them to walk through the barrel of a soldier's gun pointed directly at the preserved Métis community church. The project was widely applauded by the architectural community at the time, winning multiple awards. However, as Hutton writes, referring to the disparate military strategies used during the resistance, IKOY reveals its own discomfort in an isolated environment. Like Middleton's soldiers, IKOY is unable to recognize opportunities for camouflage or to dig in like the indigenous Métis. The building is widely disliked by the Métis community, not only for its appearance, but because it provides so little opportunity for them to represent their culture. This disconnect eventually led to a retrofit of the building in 2010 by P3 Architecture Partnership, because in addition to its no longer meeting program standards and being energy inefficient, the aesthetic was inconsistent with the values of the Métis people. In response to IKOY's offensive building as object, Hutton's culturally driven graduate thesis completed in 1996 foreshadowed shifts in the design process that have recently attempted to break from such overtly colonizing overtones. The Gift Lake Métis Community Complex, including a replacement school, local college, daycare, and other youth facilities, for instance, was completed in 2014 and was designed using extensive community engagement led by Group 2 Architecture and Interior Design. Important to the community was that the design responds to cultural specificities, which led to the use of an interior color palette inspired by the Métis sash and their corresponding meanings as well as a chevron brick pattern on the exterior linked to the sash and other Métis visual arts. Similarly, the design of an 8,500 square meter combined hospital and high school facility completed in Ile-à-la-Crosse in 2007 involved numerous community consultation sessions facilitated by the Saskatoon-based AODBT architecture. From these conversations, the prominence of the canoe in the region was reflected in the curved shape of the roof, while the multicolored exterior panels and brick mimicked the local sunsets as seen on the school board logo. Yet, despite the community of Il Alacros being nearly fully populated by Métis people, and compared to Cardinal's unique design for the nearby elementary school, the AODBT website curiously describes the town as a unique rural community in northern Saskatchewan with no reference to its rich Métis cultural and heritage. Furthermore, 
It was acknowledged during a 2016 interview with one of the lead designers that no research was done into Métis ways of building or traditional sensibilities beyond the items mentioned above, as well as a cultural room outfitted with proper venting for various ceremonies. Other recent projects with Métis-specific content include the Rossdale Memorial in downtown Edmonton, designed by Manask Isaac Architects, which incorporates the infinity symbol of the Métis flag into the landscape design, while the Métis Housing Corporation completed a seven-story affordable housing tower in 2013 for elderly urban Métis that includes a spiritual gathering room intended to reflect a distinctive Aboriginal identity. In many of these cases, however, there is a distinct shift in the way Métis architecture is conceived. The contemporary projects unconsciously sever themselves from considerations of traditional Métis ways of habitation, including social and spatial distinctions. The tectonics of log construction, preferences for informality and flexibility, cultural rituals, and strategic responses to landscape intricacies, for example. In most Métis-related projects, Métis-ness is reduced to an applied surface treatment, a color or symbolic reference to a recognizable image, often the sash or the infinity symbol, that is decaled into an otherwise generic building. An exception is clearly the cardinal-designed Il Alacrosse Elementary School, completed in 1976, where the interior is preserved as a large open space with shorter partitions to maintain its volumetric core. Cardinal's intimate knowledge about the Métis and his respect for their culture developed through both the influence of his mother and his professional work for other Métis communities, including Paddle Prairie Settlement, Gerard and Bonne of Alberta, for example. He recalls these as positive experiences, especially at Île-à-la-Crosse, where Designing the new school also involved his participation in the restructuring of the curriculum and educational infrastructure to be more grounded in Métis values. The Kikuno Elementary School, designed by Collager Schmidt Architect Engineer and led by Japanese architect Yoshi Natsuyama's, likewise seems like a meaningful Métis interpretation. The conceptual design emerged from Natsuyama's research into Métis culture and his camping at the site during two separate visits to better understand the community and the genus loci of the place. This resulted in the massing of the building to reflect a welcoming village as opposed to the monolithic structures of residential schools, steeple forms to reference the important role of the church in Kikuno, as well as using colors and patterns discovered through his research into Métis visual culture. Partner Bruce Colliger recalls that Natsuyama camped out in order to sense the air and feel the ground, which led to an approach to design that aimed to strengthen Métis culture and identity through its visual cues and massing, but also through the modest wind turbines atop the towers, providing an ethereal link between the presence of the place and the community itself. It is clear that despite being formed to the country, the site and the community Natsuyama unveiled aspects of Métis culture that resonated with the community and offered a uniquely conceived Métis architectural interpretation. Furthermore, in 2016, Nova Scotia-based Acoustics Planning and Design completed a set of interpretive pavilions and a family garden at the Batash National Historic Site that utilizes the landscape to didactically emphasize the river lot system and the local community's history. 
in this modest project, the chevron pattern of the sash returns in a wood slat and batten pattern, with the battens being further informed by exposed laths on a nearby folk homes, while the slats are metaphorically linked to a river trail and trade route. The sash and the flag atop the tower mark the project as distinctively Métis inspired, while the extended use of the river lot with its long mowed path connecting the structures offers a spatial narrative unique to its regional and cultural context. Similar to the IKOY project, the structures intentionally detach themselves from the landscape formally and tectonically, yet in this case for minimal impact and archaeological sensitivity. However, the overall design uses a series of symbolic, visual, and material cues to experientially connect the visitor to the site and reinforce the conviction of a thriving Métis culture in a contemporary way. Métis Design Projects Finally, it is essential to highlight a few contemporary projects by Métis designers. Tiffany Shaw Colleen was born in Calgary and currently resides in Edmonton, but has always maintained close ties with the Fort McMurray area where her mother was raised and where her ancestors led her traditional Métis lifestyle. A member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, it was through her art and design education that Shaw Colleen found profound inspiration in her Métis heritage, and this has become central to her fledgling career as a designer. For example, she notes that knitting, crocheting, and sewing are all skills passed down through her maternal ancestors, and she continues to pursue them in her life as a continuum. In one of her early school projects at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, for example, her inherited knit stitch formed the foundation for a formal exploration that led to her design of a recreation center for downtown Los Angeles. Later in 2012, Shaw Colleen's submission was accepted for Canada's Migrating Landscapes contribution to the Venice Biennial, where she combined the knitting and crocheting techniques learned from her mother and grandmother to construct a model of the trapline cabin of her great-grandfather, Jean Pauline. Two other models, made from deer hide and cable ties, offered other material expressions of the modest cabin. Shaw Colleen has also designed and built a hybrid arch igloo structure that could provide warmth for nomadic shelter in Edmonton, blending indigenous and western construction types into an innovative prototype. These sorts of material and formal explorations by a new generation of Métis designers offer compelling insights into how traditional methods might be reimagined using emerging technologies. It was during his education at the University of Manitoba that architect Sean Bailey similarly found inspiration in his Métis heritage, having been raised in a remote area of Lake of the Woods, Ontario. For Bailey, a member of the Métis Nation of Ontario, his heritage has impacted his approach to architecture in that Indigenous ways of thinking seek to explore reciprocal responsibilities and mutual obligations, not only between humans, but also the more-than-human world. Reciprocity is also key to his overall design interests, as demonstrated by his graduate thesis for an Anishinaabe roundhouse located on Tunnel Island Common Ground in Kenora, Ontario, a property owned by both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. The project explored relationships between building systems, parametric design, and analog methods of working in the context of cross-cultural exchange and interplay. As he describes, my thesis shared a vision of people living side by side, learning from each other, sharing with each other, and finding harmony in common ground, 
while continuing to honor the distinct elements of each culture. For Bailey, the current moment in Canadian history with a renewed focus on resolving outstanding treaty obligations offers immense opportunity to develop new, emerging, and novel methods, approaches, and traditions that reflect an equitably shared contribution from all parties. Now a partner at Boreal Architecture Studio Incorporated, Bailey's explorations have continued into his professional projects, including a sharing center for the Ochikawe Babago Inning Ojibwe Nation, designed as a fusion between vernacular, Anasanabe, and contemporary approaches to thinking and building. The program includes a wild rice and meat processing area, classrooms, conference rooms, an interior and exterior gathering space, and food services that would support large gatherings and cabins located throughout the site, with the goal to educate community members, share with non-community members, and boost economic development. Meanwhile, Nunatu Kavut architect Harriet Burday Moulton, born in Cartwright, Labrador, and raised in a nomadic mixed-blood community deeply tied to the seasonal hunting and fishing cycles of the region, has established herself as one of the preeminent architects of northern Canada over the past decades. This is largely driven by her comfort in working with Inuit communities and her passion for developing ways to increase community development through the design process. Some of her significant projects include the relocation of the Davis Inlet community to Natuwashish in the early 2000s, including building a new school, the reconstruction of St. Jude's Cathedral in Iqaluit, completed in 2013, and the Picu Sidorovic Inuit Cultural Learning Facility in Clyde River, Nunavut, whose unique layout references a kakik, a large communal igloo, with various teaching and working areas designed for observational learning. Wood on the interior and earth tones of the exterior relate to the surrounding tundra, while lichen-red flooring and sealskin-covered built-ins similarly reference the northern landscape. Though not designed with Red River Métis culture in mind, Burdett Moulton, like many other Indigenous architects, clearly aims to reconcile specific cultural sensitivities with contemporary building technologies, embracing the community's Indigenous values through engaged consultation. These design principles that have shaped Burdett Moulton's career as a Nunatukuvut architect largely emerged from her liminal life experience between Indigenous and non-Indigenous worlds. In her words, this fusion of cultures can have a strong influence on design, and if we foster it, it could be unique to Canada. Lastly, it is essential to consider the illustrious career of Manitoban architect Achon Gaburi, whose subjective Métis identity was mostly unknown. The first member of the Gaburi family, Antoine, arrived in Canada in 1690 from France, and among his descendants was Marie-Anne Gaburi, who married Jean-Baptiste Lagemaudière. One of their grandchildren was Louis Riel. Although this has been referred to as the essential leak to Etienne's Métis lineage given the recognizability of Marie-Anne's name, his indigenous heritage is instead tied to his mother, Valentine Lafreniere, whose grandmother was Mary Madeleine McTavish, an Ojibwe from Ontario. Born in 1930, Gabri acknowledges that his family's Métis heritage was never overtly acknowledged growing up, as it was considered a negative trait. For example, he recalls his grandmother Gabri, Oriel Shabbat, 
constantly reminding him and his siblings that they had indigenous ancestry and berating them for any physical features that evidenced it, such as the black or dark brown hair and eyes of some of his siblings. As Gabriel recalls, it was not until later in life, when being Métis became a mark of distinction, even of pride, that his family began to openly celebrate their indigenous heritage. When asked how his identity as a Métis person has impacted his architectural career, Gabriel's answer is careful not to mistakenly simplify one's identity or heritage with the application of formal or typological signifiers. Instead, his answer reflects the rich complexity embedded in his approach to design and often attributed to the sophistication of his work. The Métis trait is atavistic and primeval in that it is mostly embedded in my subconscious. Some are overt, like skin, hair, and eye color, but most are deeply ensconced in my genes whose attribution would be a minefield to unravel. My sensitivity to the environment, my respectful fascination with nature, and my love of its creatures and plants are probably influenced by the native genealogy. At least it would have reinforced these tendencies. There is also a sense of the sacred, a more animalistic sacredness, an awe of nature, of the universe, that cannot be accredited directly to my Roman Catholic upbringing, since Catholicism emphasized our dominance over it rather than our belonging to it our being an integral part of it. Thus, reflections on his Métis identity led directly to Gabriel's relationship with the natural world, a connection honed through his upbringing on a Manitoban farm working outdoors, caring for the various animals and harvesting grain and hay. It is this intimate relationship with nature that he feels had a direct impact on his architectural career, inspiring him to design in an organic way following a more natural and intuitive process of composition, mimicking nature where organisms evolve from the intrinsic to the extrinsic forms, from the germ to its full-blossoming maturity. An example of this is the Église du Présusang, the Precious Blood Church, completed in 1968 in Winnipeg, where the sculptural form did not effortlessly evolve from its reference to the teepee alone, but instead through such a lengthy organic process guided by the community. As Gabri describes, the church had considerable Métis cultural and social overtones, a fairly typical French-Canadian parish whose Métis members probably formed the majority. The priest in 1965 was Father Aurélie Lemion, who had spent several years as the pastor in the Métis community of Saint-Laurent. Lemoyne approached Gabriel with his dream of a new church, adding that it should be unique, beautiful, and grand in scale. Gabriel's design team submitted six solutions for the precious blood over three years, due to the arduous search for the right solution, the proper expression. A subsequent purchase of additional land allowed their team to develop a more resolved solution with a spiral plan, brick walls, and a floor and a wood superstructure. Suggesting a Métis spatial and material identity, Gabriel further describes the design and its unanimous reception by the Métis community. This very organic, snail-inspired spiral plan with its teepee morphology was immediately accepted. It seems revealing, meaningful, that a group of architectural neophytes would spur an architect to seek the right solution, one that would be meaningful to them, one that mirrored their values, their reality, 
one that was in harmony with their sense of space, with their subliminal primordial memory. Precious Blood Church is illustrative of how a regional and organic design process can merge with the values of a community to inspire an iconic architectural expression not achievable under any other set of circumstances, which was in this case designed for and inextricably tied to a Métis community. Beyond Precious Blood, Gabriel has also worked with many other Métis groups or on projects inspired by Métis history. These include Collège Louis Riel, the Louis Riel Arts and Technology Centre, the Louis Riel Monument, Louis Riel Park, the Pont Provencher Esplanade Riel Pedestrian Bridge crossing the Red River, a Métis Interpretive Centre study, and the conceptual design for a cultural centre in Saint-Laurent. Thus, though Gabory is one of the most respected and applauded Canadian architects of the 20th century, most of this was achieved without public knowledge or understanding of his deep connections to his Indigenous lineage. Today, he speaks proudly of his Métis heritage and acknowledges that it was always played a role in shaping his identity and worldview. But he also admits that this identity has remained largely intrinsic, as he was never registered with the Manitoba Métis Federation, for example. A monograph celebrating his career does not mention his Métis ancestry. Thus, it is worth considering if Etienne Gabory's career could be described retroactively as that of a Métis architect. Aside from his expressed Métis identity and heritage, there is much in his approach to architecture and life experience that is consistent with the notion of a dual worldview experienced by many Métis, one outwardly grounded in the Canadian legacy of colonial influence and education, but also intrinsically connected to the natural and spiritual wonders of the Manitoban landscape and its Indigenous Métis stewards. Métis is hybrid. Related to this notion of an Indigenous-non-Indigenous worldview, an approach to design central to the work of the architects discussed above, it is worth returning briefly to Ralston Saul's Métisisation of Canada and the implication this might have for a broader national discussion. The notion of such hybridity has long been considered an essential contributor to Métis identity. For example, as Slobodan writes, as a hybrid, a Métis is allegedly torn between two sets of cultural conditioning, rejected or not fully accepted by either of his ancestors' societies. Similarly, quoting Métis leader Stan Daniels, Harrison writes that the Métis have found themselves caught in the vacuum of two cultures with neither fully accepting them. They are Métis because they are not somebody else. Analogous experiences shaped the early life of Douglas Hall, as revealed in a 2014 interview with journalist Joe Hall. Those handsome, movie Indian features gave Cardinal a rough childhood ride in the 1930s and 1940s Alberta, which had built what he calls apartheid divides between its Aboriginal and European populations. In many cases, if you're mixed, you don't even belong in either society, he says. You're ridiculed and humiliated every day. Yet despite these adverse symptoms of a dual ostracization process, and as a direct result of them, a series of unique cultural forms and identities emerged in Métis communities throughout Canada. Michif, a distinct language with various dialects, was developed by the early Métis and is still spoken throughout the country in various communities today. One of the most recognized versions of it is a mixture of Michif French, itself a variation from Eastern and Central Can Canadian French, 
and the indigenous Cree of the Algonquin family. In this form, most nouns are French, while the verbs are Cree, expressing both a connection with the ancestral cultures and, at the same time, a form of resistance against them. Other forms of cultural expression similarly developed over centuries, including the following. Unique flower beading designs, adaptations of traditional fiddle music, the adoption of la somsham sash as a cultural symbol, the Red River Jig, a dance, the Red River Cart, designed by the Métis for transporting goods across the prairies, and the Métis Folk House described above. All of these examples demonstrate how the Prairie Métis fused together their dual worldview into a uniquely Canadian, mixed Indigenous form of cultural identity. Unsurprisingly, this Métis ethnogenesis shares some similar patterns with other mixed-blood communities around the world. For example, in South Africa, certain populations of mixed-blood people were originally called bastards from bastards, but then changed their name to Griquas in 1513 when a missionary informed their leaders of the offensive nature of the term. Bastards is a term that has also been used by a mixed-blood group in Namibia. Wright further intimates that other international colonial hybrids abound, from 19th century British India and Malaysia to Dutch Indonesia, French Senegal, and Italian Ethiopia, all involving hackneyed colonial narratives governing their multicultural exchange. In the USA, select Southern Eastern architecture has also been discussed by historians as Creole due to its hybrid origins in the mixing of French and Caribbean influences, including a series of asymmetrical Louisiana French Creole houses that evolved gradually out of primitive cabins. Perhaps the most relevant to a discussion of Métis architecture, however, is the long history of mestizo culture in South and Central America and its impact on architectural discourse. Bailey describes the mestizo style as a fusion between late Renaissance and Baroque European forms and Andean sacred and profane symbolism, which emerged during the 17th century in Peru as one of the most vigorous and original outcomes of the meeting of two cultures. This resulted in a series of unique carvings and architectural expressions, initially applied by indigenous artisans to the iconic structures of Catholicism throughout the region, where local plants and wildlife, as well as other indigenous symbols, were etched into the otherwise alien European surfaces. Hybridity, in such terms, has widely inspired architects and designers for decades. And in a world increasingly defined by hyperlinks, global exchange, multiculturalism, and mashups, it seems only natural to approach architectural design as a process-oriented negotiation between a multitude of complex interactions, systems, and cultural influence. Thus, if the idea of the hybrid is applied to Ralston Saul's conceptualization of a Métis Canada, it is worth considering how this might define a specific design process that could transform the built landscape of Canada to better to reflect its so-called collective Indigenous values. If the small case Métis is conceived as broadly embracing both Indigenous and non-Indigenous worldviews, as it was during the early usage of the term in Canada, then it is worth considering the work of Cardinal, for instance, under these terms. His writings, lectures, and designs overtly emphasize a worldview framed by a rigorous and devoted First Nations philosophy, but also one that embraces technology and its capacity for positive impact in the world evidenced by his introduction of groundbreaking computer software used for the structural design of St. Mary's Church, for example, which was completed in 1968.
It's also worthwhile in this context to briefly consider Alfred Waugh's identity as an, an Indigenous architect, similarly impacted by a dual worldview. Though registered with the Fond du Lac, nation of northern Saskatchewan, he also openly acknowledges his English and Swedish heritage, which has led some to refer to him as a Métis architect as well. A focus on sustainability, both environmental and cultural, has established Waugh's firm, Formline, as one of Canada's most recognized and progressive Indigenous design studios. Though not as outwardly focused on the iconic formal expression of cardinal, Waugh's design sensitivities are exhibited through extensive research and contemporary interpretations of material and technological detailing related to Indigenous building typologies and local cultural practices. Examples of this include the Squamish Lillawatt Cultural Centre where Waugh's team combined studies of the wood plant construction of traditional Salish longhouses with the idea of cultural transparency to develop a transparent plank, which then required a custom-designed curtain wall. Similarly, at the First People's House at the University of Victoria, woven bulrush mats at the back wall of the traditional longhouse inspired the interior acoustic walls. Waugh's design process thus begins with a sound understanding of Indigenous design principles, including sustainability and meaningful connection to the land, and then utilizes contemporary building technology and methods to achieve similar results in the ultimate goal of having, in his words, one foot in the past and one foot into the 21st century. Thus, Returning to the question of Métis as a hybrid Indigenous-non-Indigenous worldview and approach to design, like Cardinal Gaboury Shaw-Colin, Bailey, Burdett-Moulton, and Waugh, many other Indigenous architects across Canada similarly share mixed heritage and were likewise trained in schools of architecture founded on non-Indigenous principles and metrics for design excellence. If Métis has been historically used as an umbrella term to describe individuals across the country who identify with both Indigenous and non-Indigenous cultural heritage, it is at least conceivable that the term could also be employed to describe buildings and design methodologies such as those mentioned above that actively seek to integrate traditional Indigenous culture and knowledge with contemporary design and building methods. If such design practices were more broadly implemented, involving sustained participation by Indigenous knowledge holders and community members, a Métis hybrid design process could arguably begin to reinfuse architectural relevance into specific regional cultures and landscapes across the country. Alberto Perez Gomez has recently criticized current trends in architectural practice by arguing that the deep emotional and narrative aspects that articulate places in a particular natural or cultural milieu are usually marginalized by a desire to produce fashionable innovations. Hybrid approaches to design that attempt to embrace both local indigenous and globalized worldviews offer tremendous potential to resist the cultural devastation achieved by commodity-driven mechanisms in a unified attempt to, using Frampton's words, maintain a dissenting cultural and political position. The notion of a distinctly Canadian Métis design methodology, informed by and developed alongside Indigenous communities, could play a central role in this shift. However, Despite the popular appeal of such ambitious cultural and sustainable goals, 
there are a number of significant problems with activating this concept too quickly. For instance, it would imply that a Métis design process could be adopted by any well-intentioned architect or designer who, like Ralston Saul, wants to meaningfully connect with their Canadian Indigenous inspiration. Though this may be viewed as a noble move towards a decolonization of the built environment by well-meaning designers, Indigenous or not, there are also many inherent problems with this. As Tuck and Yang elucidate, there are embedded power relationships involved in non-Indigenous people aspiring to decolonize, especially through a series of what they describe as moves to innocence or those strategies or positioning that attempt to relieve the settler's feelings of guilt or responsibility without giving up land or power or privilege, without having to change much at all. One of these moves to innocence involves settler nativism, or finding a distant indigenous ancestor in order to mark oneself as blameless for the injustices of indigenous peoples, which is linked directly to the debate surrounding much Métis claims in Canada. Another relates to freeing one's mind or decolonizing one's mind through the teaching and or learning of settler colonialism and thereby convincing oneself that this is enough for so-called decolonization processes to follow. Métis scholars such as Vowell and Gaudry have taken exception to Ralston Saul's Métisization of Canada under similar terms, arguing that Canadians could not simply look within themselves to find their mythical Aboriginal core in order to understand Indigenous knowledge. Such decolonizing mythologies for Gaudry achieve their goal by erasing the very real colonial context in which Canadians and Indigenous people live, have lived, and will, in all likelihood, still be living for the foreseeable future. Gaudry and Anderson further speculate that Ralston Saul's optimistic hybridization of an entire country could be read as an attempt to mark his own mythical indigeneity. Similarly, in an architectural profession tainted by an entrenched history of colonial and or orientalist approaches to design, there is warranted suspicion of cultural exploitation for the wrong reasons. As Tuck and Yang note, settler scholars may gain professional kudos or a boost in their reputations for being so sensitive or self-aware. Yet settler moves to innocence are hollow. They only serve the settler. Adding to such suspicion in architectural practice, work with Indigenous communities is also potentially lucrative and often offers favorable marketing opportunities. This is an unsettling topic for any well-intended architect who has devoted small or major parts of their careers to working with Indigenous communities and should not be considered applicable to all circumstances. However, in order to avoid charges of exoticism and cultural exploitation through design, it is critical to emphasize the importance of establishing, using Gaudry's words, deep, meaningful relationships with actual Indigenous peoples. This may sound like an attainable goal for any aspiring architect or firm, but there are various byproducts of conventional practice, such as tight project deadlines, budgets, travel constraints, lack of exposure to Indigenous cultures, and or accurate education about them, etc., that hinder the majority of architects from being able to achieve this. Furthermore, until very recently, there has also been a significant neglect of Indigenous values and knowledge by architectural institutions in Canada, both academic and professional. 
Thus, the risk of aspiring towards a Métis design process without fully understanding the personal and institutional investment of such an endeavor would be equitable to the shallow claims of Métis indigeneity by individuals with no meaningful family or community ties, cultural investment, or long-term commitments. To highlight this, Gwendolyn Wright's concluding remarks to her essay expressing concerns for the colonizing history of global modernism are telling. She asks, can we produce histories and visions of the future attuned to local knowledge and universal hope? The greater question for Wright would be, who is the we in this context, and thus doing the producing and attuning? Lastly, it is essential to consider other ramifications of using small M Métis so loosely, as Ralston Saul does. Grzynski's concluding reflections on the nature of mestizo mind offer insight to this caveat, as he argues, it is pointless to seek to pin down a mestizo identity, especially an identity whose main feature is change, transformation, and nonstop disappearance. Thus, using Métis as a blanket term defined solely by its hybrid etymology, risks associating Métis people with, in Grzynski's words, a culture of disappearance. This is the precise antithesis of the Métis who embrace the infinity symbol of their flag, for instance, to assert the existence of a people forever. Conclusion To summarize, it is worth returning very briefly to a comparison with mestizo architectural expression. According to Bailey, there has been a nearly century-long debate over the historiography of Latin American colonial art, as leading scholars grapple over the origin, meaning, and legitimacy of the mestizo style as a school of architecture. At the core of this debate is whether the indigenous content of that period and style can be attributed to the role of indigenous people or if it emerged out of an altered and debased European transplant. One side of the debate argues that, akin to the Métis nation, mestizo architecture paralleled the interracial blending of colonial society in a specific region by a specific group, while the other contends that the style was merely part of a universal phenomenon where artists from all corners of the planet misunderstood Western European models and appropriated them as their own folk art. The risk of adopting Ralston Saul's national Métis conscious as a design ethos based on indigenous-non-indigenous hybridity is therefore that it undermines the cultural specificity of Métis communities across the country and dilutes the topic into a mere mixing of architectural styles and visual cues. If there is value in pursuing a contemporary architecture that meaningfully connects with the Métis, it will be discovered through better understanding their traditional and contemporary material culture and vernacular typologies, as well as developing meaningful relationships with the diverse communities across the country. Burley et al. offer valuable insights about spatial and material specificities related to traditional Métis ways of inhabiting the prairies, while recent field research into contemporary vernacular buildings suggests that these principles have maintained their relevance and may inspire Métis design moving forward. Meanwhile, selected projects for specific Métis communities by Cardinal and Gabory, both with Métis heritage, should be considered as contributing to an evolving lexicon of Métis buildings, along with the work of contemporary Métis designers such as Burdette Moulton, Bailey, and Shaw Colleen 
who are reinterpreting their customs and cultural sensibilities in sophisticated and current ways. Louis Riel famously proclaimed that my people will sleep for 100 years, but when they awake, it will be the artists who give them their spirit back. With approximately 450,000 Métis people in Canada and growing quickly, it is the time that architecture aims to better fill this claim that culturally specific Métis design excellence is acknowledged, prioritized, and manifested across the country as the long overdue shift towards architectural reconciliation unfolds. Thanks for listening to this episode of the DadCast. Remember to go back and look at the actual text because there's often important images or graphs or charts that you need to look at to really understand the content of this reading. The DadCast is a two dogs and a stick production. Don't forget, every day is a learning day.